All right. Um, hopefully, you got the email that went out, uh, either the email or you saw it on the website, where we, I sent you a little bit of preparation for this sermon series. Um, trust me, if you will take the time to read ahead and have some understanding of the scriptures, I've given you all of them that will be involved. Uh, I promise not to try to change any of them on you, but who knows what the Spirit may do. We leave it room for that. Um, but I think it would be really helpful to you as we go through this series because there's some thick stuff that we need to get into from a worldview perspective that has a significant impact on our ability to be missional and generous and to be prayerful. And so um, if you'll take the time to do that, would be great. And another thing that you could do that would even further enhance is if in your devotional time you would read Romans chapter 1 through 8 and and just spend some time seeking to understand what's Paul trying to do there. If you're really ambitious, a great resource would be Francis Schaeffer's The Finished Work of Christ, in which he goes through Romans 1 through 8. And uh, it's not a hard read. Um, it's actually a, a pretty easy read, all things considered, given that it is Francis Schaeffer. And it, it'll be a supreme help to you in understanding some of the things that we're unpacking. But that's only if you're ambitious, not if you're more saintly, by the way. Um, and uh, also, too, hey, my daughter exists. She's here. Y'all have heard a lot about her. Don't tell her what I said. Uh, obviously, I can't use any stories about her today, given her presence, just out of grace and mercy and all that kind of stuff. But she's here. If you would be praying for her, she's going to be flying to London. I know, hard life, right? She's going to be flying to London on Wednesday night at about 8.50, and she'll be gone away from us for about seven months. And so she'll go from, from there to Valencia, or Florence and Valencia, and so she's doing her first year at FSU abroad. And so thank you for praying for her, but continue to do so um, as she is getting a chance to see the great big old world out there. So uh, glad to have her with us this morning. All right, so let's get to the text, enough preamble. Um, what we're looking at this morning is the, f- the first part of what's called the redemptive story. So some of you may be familiar with the categories, creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. Some people use the term consummation. Some people use the term restoration. So uh, those, all that means is that that last part is in reference to the return of Christ in which all things will be made new. Now, this is, these categories help serve as a skeleton of sorts to understand the meta-narrative that is being unpacked within the Bible itself. These are incredibly helpful categories for us to understand because they come up a lot throughout Scripture. And if you have an understanding of what the categories are and how and why they are used, it will be, I promise you, a supreme blessing to you. And so this is one of the things that I have longed to equip our church in, is at least, and I know many of you are kind of familiar with it, but this is, it's the meta-narrative that helps shape our Christian worldview. And uh, if you don't think worldview is important, then you're not paying attention to what's going on in our culture. Uh, You're not paying attention to what's going on in the news. You're not paying attention to what's going on in sports or anything else for that matter. And so it's important that we think about these things. So be careful that you don't go... Isn't knowing Jesus enough? Golly, man, I remember when Jesus and Kool-Aid was all we needed, right? That's all. We didn't need all this extra dressing and these cool pictures and bulletins and all this nonsense. Well, kind of. Uh, Yes, Jesus is more than enough, but we want to more than understand the fullness of what Christ came to do, don't we? We want to understand that in as deep a way as we can between the now and the not yet so that we can live out that first question what is the chief end of man? There's got to be a Presbyterian in here somewhere. To glorify God and, and enjoy him forever. That's, the last part doesn't get near enough press, I don't think. We always, I think, really emphasize glorify God and <clears throat> enjoy him forever. It's the enjoy him part that we really struggle with, isn't it? And so I, my hope is that uh, these, this sermon series will help us in that unique category, that we would glorify God, but even more than that, that we would be able to enjoy him between the now and the not yet. Amen? All right, having said all that, uh, how many of you uh, absolutely love the fact that your life is completely and utterly meaningless? Show of hands. How many of you wake up and go, I hope today is somehow, some way, Far more meaningless today than yesterday was. I hope none of this makes any sense at all. That'd be great. If you are, then you're true, the, the true postmodern, right? I mean, you would be that in spades and then some, and you'd push back against me and say, you can't define me, I'm postmodern. Are you? How do you know? 
right? I mean, so we can, it's the dog that chases its tail. And so none of us says, I absolutely embrace and love and can't wait for nothing to make sense. Well, what is it that helps make sense of anything? Story. Story is a means by which, in terms of a meta idea, uh, story helps make sense of things. How many of you, at the end of the first Lord of the Rings, this is the only time I'll ever mention this, by the way, uh, how many of you, at the end of the first Lord of the Rings, didn't know there were going to be two more three-hour movies and were utterly ticked off like I was? Because <laughs> I did, the movie like ends, and, it's, and I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. And Susan's like, oh, there's two more films. Like, I didn't get that memo. And so I was furious. I just spent $9 for a movie that has no, no ending whatsoever. Well, what's interesting about that is how many of you have ever read anything by William Faulkner? If you have, Faulkner is an absolute master of there being no resolution. If you've read the book, The Light in August, you would have done what I did at the end and throw it across the room because it just ends with no resolution whatsoever. Nothing is satisfied, nothing resolves. And I read a biography on Faulkner called Being Faulkner, and that's the thing that he, that was his philosophy in life. He saw no meaning in anything. And so that's why he felt like his story should have no ultimate resolution, because there's no meaning in anything. Now, he was a wicked alcoholic who cheated on his wife and didn't treat his family very well, so I'm not inclined to follow his philosophy, you see. Nor are should many of you be confessionally willing to follow such a philosophy. But there is a sense in which we get that it is story that helps make meaning out of things. And one of the struggles, I think, of where we are in history, and I hesitate to use the terms postmodern because it's such a pea soup of things right now that I don't think you can categorize it. And, and we're at different places in different parts of the world. We're at different places in different parts of the country. If you were to go to Appalachia, you would think you had gone pre-enlightenment. Right? I mean, you would. And I've spent time in Appalachia, and it does feel like the enlightenment totally missed that entire mountain range and all those people. Um, you might would think that if you go into certain inner city contexts where superstition reigns supreme and all kind of uh, conspiracy theories are just uh, is the lifeblood of the community and all kind of craziness going on. And so uh, I hesitate to use any kind of idea of which we are, but one thing I have noticed about us is that we tend to be lean toward either being ahistorical. Do you know what that means? That means we don't, we don't have a conscience, a conscious understanding of where we are in history and who we are as historical people. Right? We, we want to, really, if we're honest, what we want is a clean slate because the history for us in some parts ain't pretty, is it? Depending on who you are culturally. And so we would just like a clean slate. We don't, <laughs> so we're kind of quasi ahistorical. We, we, we like some history, but not all of it. We don't want to own it all, right? And so that has significant implications if that's our mindset is to be ahistorical or quasi ahistorical. That means that we are unplugging from the story. Now, why would we do that? Why would anyone want to unplug from the larger story? Because they want to take the pen in their hand and usurp the creator-creature distinction and become the creator and redefine everything with their own ideas and their own hand and their own history as if it will last. And see, that's the thing that then leads us to meaninglessness because tell me, how many of you believe that what you're currently doing is going to last eternally? I don't think it's going to. Nothing I do, and, I'm, and some of the stuff I do, I'm thankful it ain't going to last because it ain't good, right? And so this is why we are looking at this because I think as Christians, we, are, we do. We struggle to find ourselves really in the story, and we have usurped the creator-creature distinction. And one of the primary ways I think this is evidenced is in the radical individualization that we have bought into and the consumeristic nature with which we view the church. Why do you think most people leave a church? What do you think the top three or four reasons are? Well, you guys are here, so you don't really know now, do you? <laughs> right, so the top reasons are, uh, in no particular order, uh, the music. They don't do enough of the contemporary stuff. They, 
which I'm with Marva Dawn. I think that's a royal waste of time, the whole contemporary traditional distinction, because, I mean, everything is fluid and, you know, isn't that which was done five years ago becoming traditional in some sense? You know, so I, I think those are bad categories. But we use them, don't we? I don't want some music. Music's not good. It's not good enough, or it's not the songs I know. That's really what it comes down to. It's not the songs I know. It's not the songs that turns my crank. What are some other reasons that you might think that someone would leave a church? Children's ministry. Children's ministry is not vibrant enough. Children's ministry is not outstanding enough. And so that's how most people choose to either leave a church and or find a church. Interesting that notice what I have not said so far. Whether or not they preach the gospel. Whether or not that the church actually is involved in the meta-narrative and, and discipling. So I, let, me, let me just tell you straight away, nowhere in the top ten reasons that people leave a church are, will you find that it is because of the preaching in terms of it being preaching the gospel. They will leave because the preaching is not near entertaining enough, or they will leave because they think it's too hard. Hmm, interesting. And so nowhere in there will you find that it is about the opportunity to grow and be discipled. Now, you have a, just like any bell curve, you've got a few folks who will do it, but the main ten reasons, you will not find those things. I find that, not just because my job is incumbent upon it, right, but I find that shocking, that we would jettison unity so quickly over things that are ultimately destructive to us, that usurp the creator-creature distinction, that actually usurp all that the story is ultimately about. I can tell you from experience that some of the most painful things that I have to endure uh, and have endured as an elder and as, and as a pastor is seeing people leave for all the wrong reasons, knowing what's coming for them. Not because I have pronounced some curse or called them anathema or declared them Ichabod, but because I know they're unplugging from the story, and that's not good. That's not good. So there's, there's plenty of evidence that shows that we... We're kind of missing out on the story. Listen to what Steve Garber says from Visions of Vocations about this. He says, in our imaginings, in our longings, at our best and at our worst, we are people whose identities are formed by a narrative that begins at the beginning and ends at the ending. The story of scripture itself of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And from beginning to end, we are torn by the tensions of our humanity, glorious ruins that we are. Now, the question I have as we open this and open this series is where does your story begin? This is a critical question. For some of you, you think your story begins at salvation. Let me tell you what's dangerous about that idea. You make your, that's you making you the main point or the main actor within the story. It's subtle, and many of you would maybe push back and say, well, I don't really think that, but that's just what I know. That's where I began to understand the Christian story. Well, no, but it began long before that, and it's critical that you understand that because that keeps you from becoming radically individualistic. It keeps you from untethering yourself from the story and making it all about you, which is the most dangerous thing in the world, is us making it about us alone and forgetting our chief end. And so where your story begins and how you answer that question is really, really important. Because if you would not carry it all the way back to creation, you are ultimately robbing yourselves of some of the richest truth there is in all of the Bible. Now, how much of that story do you feel like you've been in control of? This is where I will drag my daughter in. Did you pick your parents she didn't, but I'm pretty sure she'd have picked us anyway. I mean, I feel pretty confident about that. Um, actually, I don't at all. Um, <coughs> um, we didn't, did we? We didn't pick the moment of our concept. We didn't pick how the story began. We didn't pick any of that stuff. Did you pick the color of your eyes? Did you pick how much hair you have? Because I would have done different, I can tell you right now given the current circumstance on the top of my head. Did you, you know, there's a, now that seems funny, doesn't it? But isn't that part of the story? That you began in great humility. Now, where did we lose the humility? 
Where, where did we begin to think that we were able to take up our own whatever instruments you may want to pick and carry it as if we had control over this story? How many of you confessionally as parents, even though your children are going to hear you, feel like you're in control and you are going to be able to determine everything your children do from here forward? I got bad news for you. So if we're not in control of the story, what happens? Does that leave us? Does that mean we are, we are left in despair? Yes, it will mean you're left in despair if you don't have a larger story in which to connect. A greater narrative that is suggestive that there is a sovereign God who is both good and faithful to the covenant that he has promised. Without that, yes, this whole story is meaningless. And we are just sweeping sand against the tides of history and it will just get blown away time and again. What are, the, what are the controlling elements of our narrative, of your narrative? That's important for you to answer that question. What is it that ultimately controls the direction and, and, and overarching meaning of your life? Is it, for some of you who maybe aren't currently married, is it that you get married? Which becomes a dominating narrative for many people, doesn't it? A crippling narrative. Is it that you're not currently married? Uh, that your marriage dissolved? Is it, is it that you need your children to be a certain kind of people and do a certain kind of things? Those are terrible controlling elements of any narrative, but they are often controlling elements, aren't they? Is it the job that you have? What is it that's dominating your narrative at this juncture? What have you granted control to? What do you recognize as being the controlling part? And then another great question to round out the questions before we actually get to the text itself is what would be the best ending of this narrative? How do you want it to end? What, what, what would be the, the, the bow on the top of the present of your life? See, that's important for us to consider, isn't it? Because do you get to determine your end? Well, not for the most part, unless you choose to take matters into your own hands in a very destructive way. But everything else you don't get to decide. You don't get to decide how it will end, the condition that you'll be in when it ends, and those kinds of things. You know, think about the people who are all about fitness and have a heart attack running some ultra marathon, or the guy who eats 900 donuts a day and lives to be 80, but he barely can get around because he's arthritic and diabetic and all those kinds of things. I mean, yeah, we ha there are some controlling elements, but in the end, we don't get to decide all those things. So it's important that we look to something greater than whatever the end is that we will actually endure. Is there a better end for the people of God? Is resurrection something that you look forward to? Is the making of all things new, is that something that brings you delight and causes you to enjoy the God whom you will glorify forever? This is the, the, the meaning of this entire sermon series. And as we step into Romans chapter 1, it's important that we understand a couple of things. The key theme of the letter itself is actually Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I want to read that for us just so we have an idea of what it is that Paul is most concerned because this is what he is impacting over the whole of the letter. If you miss the theme, what you can do is get tangled up in the little nuances of the different phraseologies. And by the time you get to Romans chapter 9, you, you don't even want to be a Christian anymore because you don't understand what it means to say, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. That untangled, that untethered from the narrative is a devastating scripture, isn't it? And most of us just want to kind of step back and kind of flip. Okay, let's keep moving. Maybe there's something good by 12. I, I got, yeah, yeah. Living sacrifice. Oh, man. Let's keep moving. Uh, 13, love the government. Whoa, no, no, no. Keep moving. <laughs> keep moving. <laughs> you know, and it just doesn't get any better now, does it? 14, you, you, you know, you got to be careful what you eat and drink, and that's not the kingdom, and what does that all mean? On and on. So, um, but this is critical that we understand this as a theme. Listen to this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith, which is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. And so the point of the entire book of Romans is that the gospel of Christ and the person and work of Christ is utterly sufficient 
for the salvation of those who are lost and dying. And what he's now going to turn and do from Romans 1, verse 18 through Romans 3.20 is hammer out who is lost. For those of you familiar with those texts, who escapes the pen on that one? No one. Romans 1, 18 through 32 is actually going to specifically be to a largely Gentile audience, those who would have not had the scriptures, he's going to make it very clear that though they didn't have the scriptures, they are without excuse. And then he's going to turn his eye onto the Jews themselves in Romans chapter 2, and he's going to say, you had the book and you didn't get it either. And then he's going to turn in Romans chapter 3 and say, and for those of you who think I missed you in some way, shape, or form, let me just say, there is none righteous. Let me finish this. I'm going to bring you all back together, both Jew and Gentile. I'm going to flatten the, the, the ground before the cross. So it's important that we keep in mind that that's what's going on within this. And so he's going to use creation straight away as the beginning of an understanding that we all desperately need to have. And I want to make a couple of comments. And I had a professor named John Fesco who used to like to say, I'm going to take the pin out of the grenade, I'm going to roll it down the aisle, and it's going to go off. And I'm not going to have time to, to make it all better. And so if you have issues with what I'm about to say, please come talk to me and see me and make sure I'm saying what you think I'm saying. But my concern is that the church has taken the issue of creation and turned it into a sword it was never intended to be. And that we have used it in all the wrong polemical ways within our culture. Let me illustrate. Why in the world are we divided within our own ranks on whether or not creation was in six days or six epochs or six seconds or six anythings? Why are we fighting about that? Why are we fighting over the exact age of the earth? Tell me, where in Scripture, and Sam's the only person I think that could probably do this, where in Scripture does it say exactly how old the earth is? And if he doesn't tell us exactly, why are we trying to come up with a number and fight about it and be divided? But yet, is this not one of the bloodlettings that is within the context of the modern church over an issue that Scripture is silent on? And it has also become an issue for which we have turned our sword on the culture itself, and the culture has been happy to turn the sword back on us, and we are divided with science. Now, hear me. I'm not saying I believe in theistic evolution necessarily. I'm not saying that I'm a biologos guy, so don't get excited. However, Scripture itself is not interested in the exactness of science. It's telling the story. Now, I think that it is in, in, in measure. It is, it is as close to it because it's the Holy Spirit telling the story, and we weren't there. And for us to try to postulate what happened, whether it was the Big Bang or anything else, I think is the height of arrogance. For any of us to say, I know what happened 7.5 billion years ago. <laughs> Who doesn't? You're an idiot if you don't know. Well, that's crazy. That's crazy. And so we have taken what Scripture has meant by creation, and we have done the devil's work for him by distorting it and twisting it and saying, is that what God really meant by that whole creation thing? Let me tell you what I think he means by it. Instead of looking at how Scripture puts it forth, which is never in the way that, that we, the church, have put it forth. And I find that troubling. Now, this is why we're talking in terms of apologetics and worldview. All right, so here, uh, let's look at the text. Romans 1, 18 through 20. Hear God's word this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And let me pause there for a second because the verb that is used there means that his wrath is an ongoing reality. That means that there is some measure of judgment that is being exacted even now that is being poured out even now against this issue, and it will one day culminate in the final day of judgment itself. So what does that mean to us who engage in all the cultural wars that we engage in? Some of it is, and I would argue all of it, given God's sovereignty, is part of God's plan. And we, the church, need not get excited and think we're losing anything. I don't know if you know, but Christ was victorious end of sentence. Now, there is some way in which we need to respond, but we need to respond in such a way that would be missional. I was reading this week in preparation for a discussion that I'm going to have with some counselors on the issue of uh, same-sex attraction and gender identity issues. And there was a, uh, you may have heard of the, I believe she was a Harvard professor who was a radical feminist um, who identified herself as, as lesbian, 
who uh, was preparing to write a book that was utter, utterly, she thought, going to lay the axe to the root of the tree of the biblical position on gender identity. Okay, And she got a ton of hate mail, and she got a ton of support mail, but she got this one letter from a pastor and his wife that stumped her. Because it was, it was a very cogent push against the ideas that she had, but it, and it was firm, but it was incredibly gracious. And so she started meeting with this man and his wife. And so the result is, she became a Christian. Praise God. Now, how do we help somebody, as Ravi Zacharias would say, smell the rose after we have taken the sword and whacked off their nose? That's not to say that we are to be mealy-mouthed or pushovers because this is a great indication of if we know the truth, then we can stand firmly upon it because Christ has been victorious, amen? Knowing the story is really important here. And knowing that some manner of judgment that is poured out in culture is on God's behalf, not the culture's behalf. And he's making a statement that we, the church, can now step into quite beautifully and share the gospel. Did we not just read 1, 16 and 17? Because the same ongoing nature of judgment is the same ongoing nature of God's grace being poured out at the same time. And I would argue that many of the cultural wars that we have are not uh, times for us to get scared and pull in the troops or, or arm the troops and go crazy. It's actually a grand opportunity for us to step into things missionally because the ground has been prepared and for us to represent the gospel in such a cogent way, in such a beautiful way that the Spirit is able to use it as a light that shines in the darkness. Amen? And so... <coughs> We see that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now listen to what Karl Barth says here. And for those of you who know that Karl Barth's neo-Orthodox don't get concerned. I don't buy everything he sold. I don't read everything he wrote. I just think this happens to be a good quote. And that kind of rhymed a little bit and I didn't mean that to happen. But be careful because this is not about... Um, this is not about his theology, but listen to what he says. He says, men have imprisoned and encased the truth, the righteousness of God. They have trimmed it to their own measure. That's a beautiful way of saying it. He goes on to say, and thereby robbed it of both its earnestness and significance. They have made it ordinary, harmless, and useless, and thereby transformed it into untruth. Now, I want to be careful with that quote because is that what has actually happened? Has God's truth been neutered? Not in reality, but it has been in the hearts of those who have sought to suppress it. And yet, can the Lord overcome a darkness such as that? Absolutely he can. But there are consequences in the meantime, aren't there? And so we, we want to be careful that we do not take God's truth, and trim it down to our measure. And that we not take all the teeth out of it and make it utterly harmless such that it is no more than untruth. And so from there, listen to what Paul says. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And what does that mean? How did Paul just use creation? Did he say their problem is that they thought that the world was created in a thousand years? No, their, their, their problem is that they thought the earth was only 2.5 thousand years old versus 6.7 billion. Is that what he's saying? Is that how he's using creation here? What's he saying? That creation bears witness to the sovereign and providential God of the universe. Now this is incredibly important for us because what this means is, is that creation has a very specific function within the narrative. Now, what creation can't do, and you may hear the term natural revelation, that just means that what creation can reveal about God, what creation cannot do is save us. You cannot look at the world, you cannot look at a tree and come up with the, with the redemptive story of Christ. I don't care how hard you try, you're just not going to be able to do it. Not even if you look at dogwoods or other plants that are supposed to supposedly cruciform, that's not going to cut it for you, right? So do not hear me saying, and this is actually Paul's argument, because if that was his argument, Romans would end right here, wouldn't it? Be over. There would be no need to tell the rest of the story. But what he is saying is this, is that creation serves a very unique function. 
that creation should, at minimum, cause us to be humbled. Just as I said, you didn't decide who your parents were. You didn't decide the date of your birth. You didn't decide the color of your eyes. You didn't decide the color of your hair, although I know some of you can color it. I get it. There's a lot of things you just didn't decide, and that should humble you in this story. And the fact that there's a beginning, that there is a creator and you are a creature should cause us to at least take a certain stance and posture that is far more humble than I see us taking sometimes. It should also cause us to pause and ask, well, then whom is this God? Because I know many people, some of the pushback is, well, what about the Aborigines? are the Amazon people groups that have yet to be discovered and reached. What does Romans 1 tell you? They're without excuse. What's interesting about every single one of those people groups is they come up with a narrative, don't they? And what's interesting is if you study those people groups, it's usually somebody who comes up with the narrative and then uses that narrative to do what? Suppress the people which is what is so devastating about the church using the narrative to suppress her people. And so it is critically important that we recognize that all of those people groups have come up with something, but they came up with what they could see and control. They came up with a narrative that would allow someone to be in and someone to be utterly out, someone to be a have and someone to be a have not. But what we're going to find with Paul is that this narrative doesn't do that. And you might would argue, well, what about the saved and the unsaved? Yes, but that's the rest of the story. The beginning of the story, we are all equal. There's an equality to us that is utterly undeniable. And that equality is our fallenness. But we'll get to that next week. So it's critical that we see that that the whole way in which creation is used and the way that we should use it is as a means to help people recognize their smallness in the story. Because to usurp the creator-creature distinction is incredibly dangerous. And and to lose the fact that the Lord has been very gracious to always leave a a witness to himself in both creation and his people and his word is to miss his sovereignty and his providence. It is to miss um, his creatorness. And so the Gentiles, though they didn't have the scriptures... They did have creation that should have caused them to step back and say, interestingly, there is a group of Gentiles who do this. Think about who it is from the New Testament. What group of Gentiles took a step back and said, something in creation leads us to the God who is? The wise men. What was it that they saw? They looked to creation. There was a star. Now, they also looked to the scripture in some measure once Herod came to them and said, help me find this little baby. I'd like to worship him too with a sword. They looked at creation and saw that there was something bigger than them, and they looked for how to understand that creator. And what the creator did is led them where? To the Christ. Because creation was never going to be sufficient. And so, uh, in the same way, as we have the opportunity to engage with people on a missional level, creation is an incredibly important part of the story. It's an incredibly important part of the narrative that must be addressed with them. One of the great ways, instead of just jumping straight to Jesus, is find out what they think about the creator-creature distinction. What is their understanding of their own beginning? What is their understanding of the the control that they have of their own narrative? Because if you, like Paul is doing here, you pull out that tent peg, something's got to be put back, right? And hopefully what you then have the opportunity is to put back the gospel. And so creation, as Leon Morris would say, that, that these words mean that the universe has always borne upon it the imprint of God's handiwork. Order in the heavens as well as on earth bears witness to God. This whole mighty universe has always reflected its creator. It's always reflected that there's something larger than us. If you've ever uh, been out west or been anywhere where creation is just incredibly, overwhelmingly beautiful, how many of you can cannot pause and go, wow, I feel so small in all this? How many of you ever stood on the ocean's edge and realized its power? And how if the Lord didn't say it stops right here, 
we would be destroyed. What is it that holds anything back in this world? I point out in Job, after all of the arguing that goes on, when God shows up, where does God begin? Where does he start the narrative? Creation. And he's, what he's doing is he's saying to Job, Job, if you can't really understand what it is you can see, then why am I hearing your pontifications on what you can't see? Might I remind you that there is a creator and there's a creature, and that that creature is not the one who gets to call the shots about what's righteous and what's not. It is I alone. Notice how Job responds. He says, well, that's a stupid story. I don't like that at all. I want to write my own story. To heck with this junk. Isn't that what he says? For those of you Bible scholars, that's what the Hebrew says, I think, right? Not at all. He does something that I think we should do. He put his hand over his mouth. And he confessed, I have spoken ignorantly about things that I do not understand. But here's the better part. He says, that which I have heard of, I have now seen. And what does he do next? He worships. I repent in dust and ashes. That's worship, by the way. And so creation, if you, it, when we preach through Habakkuk coming up later in the spring and summer, you're going to see how creation again is used in much the same way. God says, let all the earth keep silent. Every time you see creation mentioned in the Psalms and the New Testament, always it is to set the stage that we are to be humble before the Creator. It's what it should always do to us. So that is the role of creation in the redemptive story. That it serves to humble us. It serves to make us realize that we are not the author of anything. We are not in control. And that it is incredibly important that we look to the one who is. Look back to the text, verses 21 through 23. He goes on, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me give you a warning. Notice what happened here. Did you pay attention to what they didn't do? What did they not do? were two things. They did not honor the Lord, and they did not give thanks to him. Now, Francis Schaeffer in that book makes an observation that I have seen all too many times. I'll ask people, hey, what, what, what's God doing good in your life? What, what, what would, what's for you to be thankful for? And most of the time, interestingly, people struggle to answer that question. They do. They struggle. Uh, uh, what's God doing good? Well, let me think. Well, my, uh, I got some tires on sale. God's good, man. I got that, you know that parking space? The <laughs> sovereignty of God wins every time. Uh, no, no, no. If all you even did was to say, he woke me up today. Miracle of miracles. The CO2 exchange continues. And what, why are we missing this? Why, we, why do we, the creature, struggle to know what is good about the creator? Why do we struggle to actually give thanks, being petulant children who are overly expectant, acting as if we deserved all this anyway? It's critical that we recognize the cost of failing to honor the Lord and failing to give thanks. Notice what happens is that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is a high cost, is it not? So we need to be careful about our worship. This is one of the reasons that you'll hear me challenge on the idea of Sabbath and Lord's Day, which are one and the same, by the way. And, and this idea of on that day, if you don't do it any other day, you should probably do it every day, at least take time to give thanks. Talk about how God is good if we would at least do that on one day a week, I think it would be helpful. And I've heard some of you say you've been doing it, and it's had an impact on you. Interesting that that would have such a profound impact. That gratitude would have some grand impact on us. Gratitude and honor. And he goes on to say, looking at verse uh, 22, he says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, like Job, I think we should probably put our hands over our mouths sometimes. And say, I have spoken utterly ignorantly about the Lord our God. And that which I thought I knew, I didn't know. 
It goes on to say, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. Listen to what Martin Luther says. He says, whoever enjoys God's gifts as though he had not graciously received them, forgetting the donor, will soon find himself filled with self-complacency. How many of you felt that? That as you have, have, have you know, lost gratitude, that you found yourself drifting into self-complacency, meaning you don't really care too much about the story. You don't really care about much of anything at all, as it turns out. And then that transitions into the next step being vanity. They became vain in their imaginations. In this stage, men delight in themselves and in creatures enjoying only what is profitable to them. Now, what's interesting about that is notice how that upsets the actual created order. Were we the ones who were to create images of animals? Are we the creator? Are we the ones who are to seek to create images of God? Or is our calling to be the image of God? Reflect the image of God. Someone help me out. What what does the third commandment say? No graven images. Why? Because God's uglier than we thought and he don't want anybody to find out? Why does he say no graven images of me? What does that mean I have if I can image you? I control you. And he is the one who determines how it is that he would be revealed, not us. And how often do we fashion the creator in our created image instead of the other way around? Instead of us becoming more in the image of God through growing Christ-likeness, we are taking and fashioning God in our image, our limitations, See, that should be problematic straight away because we're finite. How in the world can the finite determine the infinite? That ought to be just basic philosophical issue right there, right? But yet we do it in our arrogance because we have thrown it off. Notice how we have, have, have changed things. Think about just in our, in our society, the gender conversation. Can we? I mean, it's interesting to me, and I want to be careful here. So let me see if I get this straight. We say that our sexuality is genetic, but our gender is not. Does that make any sense? I mean, that just doesn't even make sense to me, but that's the, that's the conversation you understand, by and large. Is that, and I'm not harping on this, I'm just saying this is where we, the creature, are throwing off the creator and standing up and rising up in our own strength. It's one of the areas. Now, lest you think I'm only talking about them or those people, you do it every single day in your pride. We do it every single day in our pride, don't we? we? Every single day, we rise up in our own strength and say, it is my day to determine what I will do with it. And I never even ask the Lord which way we should go. It is us who says, I will take this job, thank you very much. With no taking the time to ask the Lord, is this the way we should go? We do it when we say, this is the person I'm going to marry because I can fix them. Will be unto you. That's you usurping the creator-creature distinction, which was which is being displayed in creation for our good and our protection. So that we will not rise up and take the place of an idol for whose end is what? Someone help me out. What's the end for any idol? Absolute destruction. One way or another, it's coming down. And it's going to break into a billion pieces. And you don't want to be that, and you don't want your children to be that, you don't want your spouse to be that, you don't want any part of anything that you are to be that. You don't want to be fashioning these graven images. And so we understand this because have you ever, have you yourself ever ignored something you know to be true? Not caring about the consequences? Now listen, I'm not trying to judge anybody here, but if you eat at McDonald's, you're ignoring what is true. (laughs) I, who love New Way hot dogs, they are dyed red for crying out loud. I am ignoring everything that is true, particularly when I wrap it in cheese, probably government cheese of some kind, and then put chili on it that looks like nuclear waste. 
So I am ignoring what is true. Now, that seems like a small example, but you, you know there's sharper examples, aren't there? Where we know what's true, and yet we turn away, thinking somehow, some way, we are going to usurp the creator, creature distinction and overcome all the consequences. Even more important, this question, does what you know about God result in you honoring and thanking him? Is what been revealed of God to you so far, not just in this sermon, but in all of your life, does it create in you an ongoing heart of gratitude and praise? I'm not saying that sometimes there won't be a struggle. Remember what Steve Garber said. We're glorious ruins in this whole thing. We're being pulled in a thousand different directions, aren't we? There's all kind of tension here that we can't just resolve by our own strength. We can't. And then, if you're not honoring and thanking him, why? What's going on? Because creation itself tells you you should. Even if we didn't have the Bible, creation alone should cause you to honor and thank the Lord for being the creator. Let's close it out here. Verses 24 and 25, this is the cost of us reversing that distinction Creation comes undone. Listen to what happens. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying that what happens whenever we try to take the place of the creator and we do not grant him the honor and the thanks that he is due, we become undone. And one of the places where that is most sharply evidenced and is so clear is, is in what happens to us in our bodies. The impurity that takes place within us is one of the clearest examples. I want you to be careful, though, for those of you who think the rest of this text is hammering that group of people, and you know who I'm talking about. It's not. It's actually using them as but one example. Later on, Paul's going to include every single one of us. All of us come undone, and it's manifest in us in different ways. No one sin being of greater abomination than another in this regard. So the playing field is flat. We are all broken in this regard. And anytime we seek to usurp the creator, the end is not good. Doug Moo says this, turning away from true knowledge of God means cutting ourselves off from any ultimately accurate understanding of this world and our place in it. Did you hear that? Let me say it again because I don't think I included this one. This is bonus coverage, by the way. <laughs> turning away from true knowledge of God means cutting ourselves off from any ultimately accurate understanding of this world and our place within it. It is costly. Ben Witherington III says this, Bad theology or worship in a morally structured universe leads to bad ethics. Degrading worship leads to debauchery of the individual and to his or her ethical demise. And so there are both vertical and horizontal dimensions to sin. Now what did he just say as we, we're bringing this to a close? He just said that what you believe about God radically impacts how you live. Radically. Your ethics are built around what you understand about who God is. And if God to you is small, guess what your ethics will be? Your ethics will be small and brutal. If God is bigger than you and faithful and good and loving and gracious, what will your ethics be? They will be cast in that light. This is why we've, we are careful within the PCA about worship. Because God makes it clear how he wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped in such a way that's going to bring him honor and glory and cause us to give thanks. This is why we have that thing called the regulative principle. We didn't come up with the regulative principle so that we could get rid of drums. Maybe somebody did, but that's not how it's to be applied. We want to care about how we do what we do. This is why we have developed the liturgy that we have here at Christ Community Church. This is why we open with Scripture and we close with Scripture because we want it to be bookended and, and, and confess that we are people of the book. This is also why we will not engage in a bunch of discussion and argument about song choice. We look at the songs and say, does, it, does, it, does this 
clearly and accurately describe the gospel narrative? Is it biblical? I, I don't want to spend any amount of time going, is it contemporary or traditional? Is it in 4-4 four, four time or 5-6 or country shuffle? I am not, that is not what we are called to be concerned with. This is also why I long for our worship to be thick. Do you know what that means? Not fat like me. But thick in the sense that it challenges us and it pushes us to not be satisfied with the anemic nature of our Christian lives. There are plenty of other places you can go and get that. And so, yes, I have pushed the limits of time. That is part of the thickness sometimes now, isn't it? So as we close this out, I want to read this last quote from Francis Schaeffer, who says, The whole issue of salvation involves our creator-creator relationship with God. God made us to love him, to believe him, to have fellowship with him. Now let me pause. What that means is that the primary problem is not moral. We'll get to this more next week. The primary problem is covenantal. It's relational. So often we attack the issue with morality instead of understanding that if there's no covenantal relationship, your morality will get you nowhere. goes on to say, we either take our place as a creature before him and believe him. Listen to this last part. And, I, and once I read this, I'm going to pray for us. I'm not going to say anything else for a moment. Or... Like Satan, we try to put ourselves, instead of God, at the center of the universe. Father, forgive us for all too often being like Satan. And all too often placing ourselves at the center of the universe and longing to instead to be the creator that we can't be because we're finite and limited. And we don't know all of history. And we don't know all of the story. And we don't have omniscience to help us out. And we don't have omnipotence to bring it to pass. And we are not sovereign. And we don't have providence to control anything. Forgive us for thinking that we would have any of that. Or that in not having that, we could make anything happen. May we confess clearly that we have distorted creation in our bodies, and that we have usurped the creator-creature distinction. And let that confession be the beginning of our honor and praise of you and lead us into thanksgiving this day. God, we thank you that you have been so gracious as to be clear to us with this reality. And may we have the courage to respond to how the Spirit may be stirring in each of us in this regard. God, if we have questions, let us first bring them to you and to your word. And then let us be courageous to try to work them out in the fellowship of saints that you have been so gracious to give us. God, thank you for the clearness of your word. And thank you for the ongoing perseverance of your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.